This morning, a reading from Genesis 38. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, and he feared, as he feared that he would die also like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of the time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to marry my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And a reading from Matthew. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you, Megan. These are interesting and somewhat scandalous passages. That's not the reason Scott and I are objecting our responsibility to read them, uh, but thank you, Megan, for reading it. Uh, someone told me after first service, they said, man, that's the best sermon on Tamar I've ever heard. I said, had you ever heard a sermon on Tamar? And they said, no. So it's a low bar. Why these women, the mothers of Jesus? It's interesting that Matthew includes five women in his genealogy, and that's not something just to take for granted. Luke has a genealogy of Jesus as well, and there are no women in it, not even Mary. And if you compare them, they are different. Luke's genealogy counts uh, backwards uh, all the way to Adam. Matthew's genealogy counts forward, starting at Abraham. So the simple answer is they have theological reasons for their different genealogies. 
And that leads us to the question, what theological reason would Matthew have for including and featuring even uh, these women? There are some things that they have in common. All of them, with the exception of Mary, are foreigners. So this, this means they're outsiders. They're, they're non-Jewish. They're Gentiles. In, in Old Testament language, that means they are outside the people of God. All of them are involved in some sort of promiscuous way, you know. Even Mary is allegedly, uh, right, uh, promiscuous. She's not truly, right? She's a virgin. Uh, but it's almost as if the, the badness, if you will, of the, the sexual morality and social norms being violated is one of, the, one of the reasons that these women have something in common. Even Ruth, think about it, throws herself uh, on the feet of Boaz while he's sleeping. So questionable morality maybe. And then finally, all of them are women. It's an important fact, actually, because this teaches us something theologically. Here's what it teaches us. At a minimum, it teaches us that Jesus, who's the coming king, it's his genealogy, his royal uh, genealogy. Jesus is the king. He's the savior who is coming. Jesus is just as much the savior of, of, uh, of men as he is of women. He's just as much the savior of, of the bad, of the promiscuous, as he is of the pure. And he's just as much the savior of the Gentiles and the outsider as he is of the Jews. This is the gospel in the form of a genealogy. And when we saw that, Scott, myself, Megan, a couple others, we got excited and we said, this is really neat. It's a really neat way to think about the gospel at Christmas. And so what we want to do each week is take time to go deeper into each of the stories of these women, all five of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. And so each week we will be reading these uh, stories, somewhat scandalous, and so in the spirit of Christmas... Uh, prepare to be surprised. Uh, today we're looking at the story of Tamar, and we will be seeing three beautiful implications of the gospel. And by implications of the gospel, what I mean is three things that if we consistently understand the gospel, three things that we should hope to see and expect to see, and we should labor to see, uh, but also three things that God cares about, that he values. And here's the three things, social justice, personal redemption, and global abundance. Social justice, personal redemption, global abundance. So, Tamar. It is a story uh, most immediately about justice, social justice. The story uh, really centers around Judah. You will remember that Judah was one of the brothers of Joseph, you might know the story that Joseph had a coat of many colors and his brothers were envious and they nearly killed him and ultimately they decided uh, to sell him to slave traders who take him to Egypt. But you might have forgotten that it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph. So Judah is kind of a ringleader of his brothers and as you read Genesis 38, Genesis 37 is the story of Joseph and then inserted into the middle of that story is this chapter, the story of Judah. We see Judah leaves his family, he goes to Canaan, and he marries a Canaanite. And if you know your Bible, then this should tip you off that something is not right with Judah. Because Abraham and Isaac, they go very out of their way to make sure that they do not marry a Canaanite wife because God has cursed Canaan, and this is part of the judgment that falls on them later. But Judah, it says, he sees a woman of Canaan and he takes her to be his wife. 
He sees and he takes. And uh, that is also an illusion. If you think about seeing and taking, it's, it, it implies an illicit taking, a bad sort of taking. Eve saw the fruit and took it. Uh, the sons of God in Genesis 6, they saw the women and they took any whom they chose. Judah sees and takes. It's, it's telling us something's wrong with Judah. He's lustful. He's making bad decisions. And he has two sons that really punctuate his badness. They learned it, his sons, from someone. And his first son is named Ur. And uh, his second son is Onan, and his third is Shelah. And we don't know much about Ur from the text. Uh, we do know that his name, Ur, in Hebrew is evil spelled backwards. So uh, it's literally like he is backwards evil. <laughs> he's really bad. In fact, he's so bad that God puts him to death. And that should alert you to the fact that he's really bad because God lets a lot of really bad people not be put to death. He hasn't put anyone to death since Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. And before that, the flood with Noah. And this is the first individual that God executes. He was pretty bad. He was literally backwards evil. Uh, so Tamar was married to Ur. And now as an aside, if Ur was that bad, think about what Tamar went through, being married to him. It was not good. And so Tamar uh, has, a, has a, a tough marriage to Ur. He's put to death, and she has no son. So Judah uh, tells his next oldest son, Onan, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law and uh, go and sleep with her and try to produce a son. And that's weird to us. Um, it's called levirate marriage. It comes from the Latin word levir. It's like liver, but with the vowels swapped. And what it means is husband's brother in Latin. So this is a husband-brother marriage. And the reason they did this, not only the Israelites, but other ancient cultures, was because land was passed down through the men. And so if you were a woman and you were married to a man, uh, then you had land, which is good. But if your husband died and you had no son, then you were a woman without a man. And a woman without a man was a woman without land. And when you lived in an agrarian society, you lived off the land, you grew your food on the land, you fed your cattle on the land, you had a home on the land. Having no land made you very vulnerable. And so in Deuteronomy 25, we read about the Mosaic law establishing levirate marriage, where the husband's brother would produce a son. He would marry the widow. He would produce a son for her. It's interesting that in Hittite law, which is another country in the ancient Near East, and later in Assyria, if a husband's brother was unable to do this, it was permissible even for the father-in-law to do this. Just a detail to think about. So Judah tells Onan to go and give Tamar a son. But it says in verse 9 that Onan knew the offspring would not be his. You see, the whole purpose of the Levirate marriage was to produce an heir, and so if Onan is the second born and the first born is dead and he produces an heir, then that means all the inheritance goes to the first born and not to him. So what Onan did, it says, is that whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would make sure not to get her pregnant. And I hate to point this detail out to you, but it says whenever he went into her, that verb is saying this was not like a one instance sort of thing. This was a habit. This was continual. 
He was repeatedly abusing Tamar for his own pleasure, but he was also violating the custom and the later law of Levirate marriage. It's so terrible that God also puts him to death. Strike two, and there are only three strikes in the game. So Judah is afraid at this point. He's only got three sons, and one of his sons is Shelah. So what he says to Tamar, and it was very shameful, by the way, to not fulfill the duty of Levirate marriage. If you go read in Deuteronomy, a son could choose not to marry his, uh, his brother's wife, but if he did that, then she would take off his shoe and spit in his face. So it's something you wanted to avoid if possible. Uh, the shame that would come, of course. So what Judah says is he says to Tamar, go stay in your dad's house. Uh, Shelah's not old enough to, to be given to you yet, but I'll give him to you. However, he crossed his fingers when he said that. It tells us in the text that he feared that he would die like his brothers. And we later learn that Judah never had an intention of giving Shelah to Tamar. And so this is really sinister because it was possible for Judah to release Tamar and say, go back to your dad's house, go live there, go try to find another family to marry into. I release you, you know, go, go try to find work. He could have done that. But instead what he does is he keeps her under his authority. That's why he's the one who says, bring her out and let her be burned. He keeps her under his authority, but in her dad's house, she's not receiving any of his benefit, but he's basically doing this. He's putting her on the shelf and he's saying, I'll use you later if I need you, but I'm not really banking on it. And this uh, is, of course, another example of how Tamar is used and abused. And it's an example not only of family dysfunction, but it's an example of social injustice. It is the big and powerful preying upon the weak and vulnerable, and that's a big problem to God because God cares about social justice. I know that term, by the way, social justice, is kind of politicized. And so I thought about saying societal justice. Uh, But all I mean by social justice is justice in society. (laughs) That's all I'm trying to say. Justice at the level of society. And if that's what we mean by social justice, and it's what I mean, then we must say emphatically that no one cares more about social justice than God. He is the God of justice. And we shouldn't be afraid of that term because it's actually a biblical term, and it was long before it became politicized. In fact, it's printed in my Bible in Exodus 22, 16 to 31, that the subtitle is Laws About Social Justice. So social justice is in the Bible. It's in the the subtitles, which were not part of the original, granted, but it's still printed there. And the point anyway is that God loves justice. He is a God of justice. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 17. It says this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. How does he do that? Well, he does that by creating laws, laws which protect them. Later in Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, it says this, And the subtitle here is just justice. So you can go read it. Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Verse 20. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God does not 
arbitrarily care about justice because he's the God of justice. He loves justice because his blessing is tied to it. He is a righteous God. He demands righteousness from his people. The, the word for justice and righteousness are the same root in Hebrew. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea as well. Every time you see, almost every time, you see this word justice or this concept mentioned in the Mosaic law, you see these words that follow it, like the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. Well, listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, the biological brother of Jesus says in uh, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit orphans and widows. Now, this is important. Tamar is the first widow in the Bible. She's the first uh, mention. The first time the word widow is used is in reference to Tamar. And so this is important. What Judah is doing is is not just uh, being a bad dad or father-in-law or something like that. He is breaking God's righteous moral standard for his people. The real scandal of this story is not what Tamar does, although to a modern reader it seems that way. The real scandal of this story is what Judah does. And what does Judah do? Nothing. He does nothing. He does not visit the widow in in their affliction. He doesn't give his son Shelah to Tamar. Maybe he gives another wife to Shelah, or maybe uh, he just just resolves, I'm never going to let him be married to her. What the, the big scandal is what Judah does here. And so Judah's wife dies, and uh, it says that he's going up to shear his sheep, uh, which is Hebrew for he's going to a big rager. Like seriously, it's, it's a, fe- a festival, the sheep shearing festival. It's a party. It's a big grand time. And Tamar knows that his wife is dead, and Tamar knows a lot about Judah's character, and sh- so she conceives this plan. What else was she supposed to do? Megan, uh, Megan South, I said V. Megan South, I'll call her that. V. Megan South <laughs> wrote this in our Advent devotional, which is really beautiful. Left with nothing but her widow's garments to remove, Tamar walks a questionable path towards justice, knowing this is where she will find Judah. Through hiding herself, she reveals Judah's character. She is veiled, he is unveiled. As she collects his seal, cord, and staff as payment, she builds a case of injustice against him. It's really good. It's better than a lot of the commentaries I read. And, and what this is, is you see what Tamar does, is she does the only thing she can to, to get justice in this society. She takes it into her own hands, and the dramatic moment of the story occurs when Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and very coldly he says, bring her out and let her be burned, which, by the way, was over the top. Only the wife of a priest should be burned. If this was Mosaic law, then she should be stoned. So Judah is seething with anger, probably, his, his wrath towards Tamar. He's finally getting the chance to unleash it upon her. He says, bring her out, let her be burned, and Tamar says, please identify whose these are. She lays before him his cord and staff and seal. Please identify whose who's these are. And this is one Hebrew word called nakar. Please identify. Or it might, be, uh, it might be recognize. It could be one word to translate for it. And that's important 
Because that one word is the word that Judah used when he took the coat of many colors dipped in blood to Jacob. In Genesis 37, 32, it says, they, Judah and his brothers, sent the robe of many colors. They brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And this is like vintage God right here. Like what he's doing is he's, he's, he's tricking Judah with his own trick. The same way that Jacob was a deceiver who was out-deceived. He was deceived uh, in the night where he couldn't see, just like he deceived his dad with poor vision. What's happening is Judah is getting his own trick played upon him. The very word that he used to scam his father, please identify if this belongs to Joseph. That's what Tamar says to him. Please identify if these are yours. Judah is being exposed in public, not only for the sin that he's done for Tamar, but he knows in his heart for his entire life of wickedness up to this moment, it's coming back upon him. And Judah does the right thing. Surprisingly, he repents. He says, she is more righteous than I. More righteous than I. Literally more justiceful than I. She, she has more justice than I do. She is more innocent than I am. So what's happening in this text is, is it doesn't mean that Tamar is commended for her means, but it does mean that she is vindicated in her pursuit of justice. It shows us that God vindicates the lowly, that God cares for the weak and the, the vulnerable and the widow. And if you think about it, this would have been a sermon text that Moses might have preached to the, to the nation of Israel. He had the law and he had these stories. And in Deuteronomy 25, when he says, you will care for widows... He would have said, the reason why is because look what happens when you don't. Yeah, when I was in North Carolina, um, I, have, I have a truck. It's actually still in North Carolina. I just don't trust it to make the drive across the country. Uh, but maybe one day. It's a Ford. It's a 1992 F-150 steel body. The truck and I are the same age. And uh, everybody loves my truck. I, I, Marguerite and I quit counting. Like 30 people said, hey, when you want to sell that truck, let me know. Uh, people love it too much because someone actually stole it one Christmas. We were up in New England, and we came back, and it was gone. They busted out the window, I found later. So we find the truck later, a few weeks, and um, I, uh, I was really happy. I found, found my truck, and they didn't know that you had to put just as much oil as gas in it. <laughs> so the engine, it actually locked up and on the middle of a highway. It got impounded, and I go to get it, and uh, I remember talking to a police officer and saying, so did you get like some fingerprints? Like, you're gonna go after the guy that did this? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you know, with, with cases like this, it's just not worth our time. And that shocked me, because I live in America, right? And I was like, I was expecting like a full CSI movie. Like, you know, like, who stole Hunter's truck? And like, let's go find, let's go find this guy. He's like, it's just not worth it. There are too many other things to, to, to deal with. You know how wicked it is to have your truck stolen? I had to pay to the impounding fee to get my truck back. I had to pay to tow my truck, which would not drive. Where's the justice? And here's, here's what I'm saying. Maybe you're wondering, where's the justice? Because a lot worse things than a truck can be stolen. Am I right? And the point of this text is that God cares, that God says, I will take the time. It is worth my time to find justice. 
But you might be saying, well, Tamar gets her son, she gets vindicated, but what about me? What about my justice? And that's why I wanna tell you about God's ultimate plan for justice. And this is our second point, personal redemption. It is worth God's time. Another story uh, about redemption. So a few weeks ago, Marguerite and I, uh, might have been months ago now, I suppose, we, um, back in the heat of the summer, uh, we started noticing a lot of flies in our apartment. And at first I'm like, this is probably just a weird Arizona thing, it's no big deal. But there were a lot of flies. So we bought the plug-in fly traps. I have a bug assault rifle uh, that actually has a laser attached to it. So I had a great time shooting salt at these flies. You know, if you don't know what a bug assault rifle is, dads, that, sh- that should be your Christmas present. Anyway, so I'm shooting flies. We're, we're trying to kill them and they keep growing. And Marguerite said to me, does the laundry room smell weird to you? And I, was, I went and get, did the sniff test and I said, a little weird, but we shouldn't worry about it. I don't think it's, I don't know, probably just someone next door or something. Uh, never trust your husband's nose. That's the moral of the story. So I'm cleaning out uh, an area in the apartment and I come to one of our camelbacks. And I notice there's a little bit of like mold kind of starting on the outside. And now this camelback uh, was a gift uh, to Marguerite. It's sentimental. Please don't tell my mother-in-law the story. And um, it was, camelbacks are not uh, cheap, so it's a little bit valuable to us. But I go to it and I unzip it and some flies come out. And then I remember the bananas. We left two bananas, two big bananas uh, in this camelback. And they had been sitting there for probably at least, at least five weeks. I mean, like a long time. I scoop out the bananas, the black peel, like solid jet black, the, the, the banana soup you know, that's in this bag. I am not exaggerating. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do about this? And I, I tried to turn it inside out and wash it. And like, listen, I'm a frugal person. I don't want to waste things, but this thing was done. <laughs> it was done. I trashed it. You can't drink out of something you don't trust. You know what I mean? So uh, we got rid of uh, the camelback. It was irredeemable. You see where I'm going with this? And here's the thing. This is, in a way, what you and I do with people. We have people in our lives. It might be people we know or or only people that we're aware of. And we say, that person is trashworthy. That person is is canceled. That person could never be redeemed. They might even be people in your family. How many years had Tamar probably thought, Judah's a basket case. There's no way anything good will ever come out of him. This is the scandalous thing about the gospel. The gospel uncancels people. The gospel redeems people. The gospel cleans people. As, As we read earlier, it's as though your sins are like scarlet. They will be white as snow. It's the scandalous thing about the gospel. Everybody wants justice. Not everybody wants to see their enemies redeemed. But what we see is we see Judah redeemed in this story. And here's what I mean. If you look at the beginning of uh, the story of Judah, right? Genesis 37, 38. He's a ringleader with his brothers. He abuses and uses Tamar. He's a bad guy. But you fast forward to Genesis 44 and you see a very different Judah, In in the story of Joseph, Joseph is in Egypt. Uh, He's risen to power. Joseph uh, has, uh, he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so he's putting them to a test to see if they've changed. And here's the test. His brothers come to him to get some help. And Joseph says, just give me Benjamin, the youngest. The rest of you can go on. You can live your life. But just let me take your brother. 
Let me take your brother from you. And what you see in Genesis 44 is you see Judah, of all the brothers, Judah, who falls down and pleads with Joseph and says, don't take my brother. Take me instead. Take my life as a ransom, not, not his. He literally says this to Joseph, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? And when Joseph hears that, he just loses it. He breaks down because he realizes his brothers have passed the test. Judah is changed. Judah is redeemed. Judah is no longer the ringleader. Judah is the true leader that he is supposed to be, who's standing up for his brothers, not selling them. And what is it that takes Judah from a conniving, selfish, abusive, and lustful man to being the generous, sacrificial, Christ-like figure who lays down his life in the story, what changes Judah? It's Tamar. It's Tamar. It's probably the most dramatic scandal in the whole book of Genesis. It's a scandalous tale of Tamar that exposes Judah's sin. It's what humbles him. It's what rekindles his faith and begins the process of transforming him. And if you don't overthink it, This sounds a lot like another story that you know. And it's the story of the gospel. A story about God stooping to become man who was born of a virgin. And that was seemingly scandalous to be born of a virgin. And Jesus became a friend of sinners. He was called a a glutton. He was a friend with, with prostitutes and tax collectors. He scandalized the religious establishment of his time. He died on a Roman cross the most horrific, scandalous, egregious death imaginable. So bad, no Roman citizen could be crucified. They were exempt. The whole thing from beginning to end should shock you. It's kind of designed to shock you. The death of Jesus is scandalous. The life of Jesus is scandalous. Even even the birth of Jesus is embroiled in scandal. Not that he had sinned, but that his life appeared scandalous. And this is the thing. So is redemption. Redemption itself is scandalous. Jesus talks to the the most outwardly put together people. It would have been some of us in this room that Jesus was talking to when he said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. You see, the scandalous thing that the gospel teaches, the scandalous thing that the Bible teaches is this. That, that good people go to hell and bad people go to heaven. I said that correctly. You may, you may think I misspoke. But the Bible never teaches that good people go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven because there are no good people. Bad people made good. Heaven is filled with the bad made good. But no one is good enough to get in. And the the story of Tamar and these other women that we will look at are scandalous. They really are in many ways. But if I could put it to you like this, the gospel is more scandalous. Tamar came in the likeness of a prostitute in order to condemn Judah's sin. But it says in Romans 8 that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned all sin in the flesh. Tamar exposed Judah's sin and hypocrisy, but Christ exposed ours. 
Tamar was declared innocent and her life was spared even though she had sinned, but Christ was condemned as guilty and crucified even though he was innocent. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.21 in light of the story of Tamar. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, sinless Jesus, suffering the, the punishment of sin in our place. God made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be redeemed. And what I want you to see is that Judah's path to transformation and redemption, it came in the most unlikely way, hidden behind a veil, but so does ours. As the trumpet played earlier, hark the herald angels sing. And what do the heralds say? And what do the angels sing? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The point of all of this is not to promote scandalousness or baptize sexual immorality. The point of the whole story is this. It's nakar. It's nakar, which means to identify. Please identify. Recognize. Recognize Jesus. Recognize that Jesus doesn't throw people away. Recognize that Jesus has the power to redeem people who seem to us irredeemable. And the gospel brings our case of injustice before us. This is why people don't like the Bible. It's a hard book to read because the first thing it does is it lays, it makes a case in front of you of your sin and it says, please identify. Is this yours? And you can't get saved. You can't go further until you say, it is. And he, God, Christ, is more righteous than I. But if you can admit that, then something will happen to you. It's the pattern of the gospel. It happened to Judah. It happens to us. It happened to me. It's happened to many of you. You will be scandalized by the gospel of grace. Your life will be changed. You will become a little Christ like Judah. You will love your brothers. You will lay down your life even for them. You will become the person God intends you to be. The gospel will save your soul, but it does more. It might save your, your neighbor's soul. It might save your family. And please know that the gospel is for broken families. Some of you may be looking at the story of Tamar and you might really be saying, I'm serious, you might be saying, I wish that was the only thing wrong in my family. And what I want you to see is that Jesus came for broken families. His own family was broken. Redemption for the uh, individual. It starts there, but it never stops there. This is the end game. It's our final point, global abundance. Because you see, the story of Judah is still not finished. There's one more mention of Judah. It's not over in Genesis 37 and 38. It's not even over in Genesis 44. The story of Judah ends where we will in Genesis 49. It's the last time we see Judah living. Jacob is prophesying over his sons. And it's interesting the prophecy in Genesis 49 that he gives to Judah is he's saying Judah will be the one, not his brothers, but Judah will be the one through whom the king will come. He says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Have you ever thought it's interesting that God chose Judah and not Joseph? through whom to bring the Christ? It's because God chooses the redeemed, not the righteous. The scepter will not depart from Judah. There's a king who will come, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's when we get justice, ultimate justice, full social justice. The peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping him. 
But listen to this last part. There's more. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine. His vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. What could this be talking about? It's saying the king who's coming has a donkey. Do you know a king who has a donkey? That's your your first question. But it's saying this, the king will come with his donkey and bind it to a choice vine. My mom didn't have a midlife crisis where she bought cars, she bought donkeys. Seriously, they have like a small donkey farm back in North Carolina. And I know for a fact that if you were to bind a donkey to a choice vine, it would destroy that vine. (laughs) It would pretty much eat it in five seconds. So why would you bind your donkey to the choicest vine? And the answer is because there are so many grapes, it doesn't matter. There's such an abundance of grapes, it doesn't matter. Wine is cheaper than water. You wash your garments in wine. There's so much wine, your eyes are darker than wine. There's so much milk that even though your eyes are darker than wine, your teeth are still white. It's, it's a picture of lavish, global abundance is what we're seeing here. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's a picture of the future from Revelation 5, where we read, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But get this, it's also a picture of the past. Because the king will come back, but the king has already come once before. Jesus is the king with the donkey. And what was his first miracle? It was turning water to wine. A foretaste of what is to come. This is Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But don't forget it, he's also the son of Tamar. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for loving the unlovely, for redeeming the irredeemable, I consider myself chief in that number. And God, uh, as, as we think about the gospel uh, this morning, uh, with just a few minutes left in the service, I pray that it would it stir us up into worship. Uh, I pray, God, that uh, we could be especially excited this Advent season as we, as we remember and reminisce the fact that you have come. That's why we're celebrating. So for these five weeks of Christmas, God, I pray that you would Bless us abundantly as we study uh, these women, the mothers of Jesus. And I thank you for what we read in Hebrews, that you're not ashamed to call us uh, brothers. We love you, God. We pray this now in your holy name. Amen.